0: Well, you be, will be thrilled to know that this morning we're going to talk about theology. Now, aren't you glad you got that extra hour of sleep? Now, there are a lot of different types of theology we could talk about. We could talk about reformed theology, covenant theology, dispensational theology, patristic theology, medieval theology, dogmatic theology, liberal theology, liberation theology, Redheaded theology... We could talk about Old Testament theology and New Testament theology and moral theology and philosophical theology, but we're not going to talk about any of those. They're all good things, most of them at least. The type of theology that we're going to talk about this morning is a theology I've really never heard anyone else talk about, but it's shouted in God's Word. It's plumbing theology. Now, those of you in the back row are wondering if the sound system is working correctly, because it sure sounds like I just said plumbing theology, doesn't it? I did. Now, contrary to those other theologies that take years and years of intensive study, even lifetimes to understand, plumbing theology only takes a few minutes to understand. It takes a lifetime to unpack, but only a few minutes to understand. And it will take you a minimum of two to three years to get a master's degree in one of those other kinds of theology. It only takes you a few minutes to get a master's degree in plumbing theology. In fact, you're going to get your master's degree this morning. We're having a commencement service out in the parking lot after this service. You'll all be masters in plumbing theology. The way that you can become a master in plumbing theology is to simply be able to repeat this sentence and understand the implications. There's a difference between a bucket and a pipe. Now, are you blessed right now or or what? Does that just make you so glad you're here? Both look very similar from the side. Both are cylindrical in shape, but you take the pipe, you turn it on in, and you can see all the way through it. See, I'm exercising my gift of clarifying the obvious right here, right? You're still blessed, even more, now that I've said that. You take the bucket, you you lift it up, turn it on in, you don't see all the way through it. What goes into a bucket stays in a bucket and stagnates. What goes into a pipe flows through that pipe and moves elsewhere for usefulness. Buckets are stagnation. Pipes are freshness. I remember almost 20 years ago, I was in my first post-college apartment. It was before I was married, and I cleaned my kitchen once a year, whether it needed it or not. (laughs) And in one of those annual cleanings, I opened up the cabinet underneath the sink to take the sponge that I'd used in the previous year's cleaning. And when when I grabbed it, I realized something right away, that I had not squeezed it out the year before. So all the contents that were in that sponge year before, that were supposed to have left that sponge, were still there in that little bucket. And the reason that I knew that is the moment that I touched it, I broke a protective film that had formed around that sponge, a film that was saving a fragrance for such a time as this. <laughs> and that fragrance filled my kitchen and my apartment for a couple of days, actually. In fact, it began to disintegrate in my hand. It was awful. Why? Because what went into that little bucket and that sponge wasn't supposed to stay there. Every person here is predominantly either a bucket or a pipe. And it's a beautiful thing when a bunch of pipes get together and call themselves a church. I mean, it's awesome. There's celebration. There's authenticity. There's freshness. Sad thing happens when a bunch of buckets get together and call themselves a church. And every person here has experienced that, at least from a distance. You've seen it. It's not a pretty sight. All these buckets clanging into one another, griping about, you spilled your stagnant water in my bucket. I already have stagnant water of my own. How dare you? How can you tell which you are? Let me give you a one-word hint. grace. And what happened when you just heard that word? Is it just a word? To a lot of people it is. A woman's name. A characteristic of a particularly good athlete. An act of kindness. Something you say before a special meal. Or you come into the walls of a church and we add the word amazing in front of it because of a popular song. But is it really? Is grace really amazing? Am I really amazed by grace? Are you? You know, if the truth be known, too many church people aren't amazed by grace. We never have been. In fact, we yawn at grace. If you want to get right down to it, many of us are bored buckets instead of amazed pipes. The gospel message of amazing, extravagant grace comes into our lives, but instead of letting it transform us, We keep it at arm's length. We throw it into our religious bucket, turn it into an entry in our religious vocabulary collection. And let me tell you what happens there. There it ceases to be a truth of amazing beauty. It ceases to be grace. And instead becomes a rotting relic of my religiosity that I pull out every now and then when I need to say something spiritual. But... when I begin to understand grace great things begin to happen. When I begin to understand grace, I realize it's not a complicated concept. The grace is simply God's incredible, lavish, amazing propensity to lavish, to bestow, to dump benefits and blessings and good, unimaginably good stuff on undeserving and unworthy people like you and me. The grace is this proneness that God has to give human beings not what we deserve, but what we need. And when I begin to explore that, to impact that, to experience that, a beautiful thing begins to happen. I become amazed enough to want to let the reality of that grace flow through me to the people around me. I begin to be amazed enough to want to give grace away. I become more of a pipe than a bucket. That's all, All a pipe is, all a conduit is, instead of a container... Is someone who's been captivated, who's been captured, who's been enthralled, and is enthralled by God's grace, and is used to let that grace flow around them to other people horizontally and back to God vertically in worship, in exaltation. Plumbing theology is throughout God's Word. Psalm 67, verse 1 and 2. Oh, God, be gracious to us and bless us so that we may harbor all of that, collect it in our little religious circle, go over in our holy huddle and build a fence around us and look at how terrible the rest of the world is. Right? Now, oh God, be gracious to us and bless us so that your name might be made known to all the nations, your salvation to all peoples. That's plumbing theology. Ephesians four thirty-two. Forgive one another just in God, as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Be a pipe, not a bucket. Second Corinthians chapter 5. It's a familiar passage to many of you because of verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, a new creature. The old has passed away. New things have come. But you know what follows that? In verse 18, Paul writing to the Corinthians says this. All this is from God. Now tell me if you don't think Paul is a plumbing theologian. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciled means to be made friends again. He says he's reconciled us to himself. He's made us friends again with himself. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. and the Greek it's piped. We are therefore Christ's pipes as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the last verse of 2 Corinthians 5. But if you know anything about the Bible, you know that when Paul was writing that letter to the church in Corinth, he wasn't using chapters and verse divisions. Therefore, the very next thing he says in verse 1 of chapter 6 is this. As God's fellow workers, we urge you, not to receive God's grace in vain. We plead with you to to not be buckets. When When the message of grace comes along, don't stagnate. Don't get all religious and pious. Give it away. Now, How can I become more of a pipe than a bucket? Let me be real honest with you. You and I are never going to give something away that we don't have. Let me be honest with you about something else. There's no way I'll be a pipe without being amazed at God's grace. And there's no way I'll be amazed at God's grace without being a pipe. They're one and the same. Therefore, the key to becoming more of a pipe is found somewhere in becoming more amazed. And instead of yawning at grace... I'm enthralled and captivated by it. So the rest of our time this morning, we're going to talk about what it means to be amazed by grace. We're going to do that by looking at a passage in Luke chapter 15. If you've got your Bibles, turn there. If you don't, the passage is in the back cover of your newspaper. And In this passage, we hear a story that's almost too familiar to some of us, called the story of the prodigal son. Luke 15, however, starts in verse 1 and 2 with a context. This is the situation. Jesus was spending time with tax collectors and sinners. And the righteous, the the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Torah teachers, the, the teachers of the law, were murmuring and were grumbling that he was spending so much time with this despicable group of people. Therefore, in response to their murmurings, Jesus tells them three stories. Story number one is a story of a lost sheep. He talks about how a shepherd left 99 to go search for one. He found that one and there was a party. Story number two talks about a woman who lost a valu- very valuable coin. She searched the entire house. When she found that coin, there was, a, there was a party. And then the third story is a story of not one son, but two. It's very important for you to remember because the point of Jesus telling this story is not just to describe the prodigal's journey but to talk about the older brother. You see, as Jesus was talking to these religious leaders, buckets, he told them a story about two sons. And that story of two sons is a story about the birth of a pipe in the unmasking of a bucket. See, if I'm going to grow as a healthy follower of Christ, and become more of a pipe, I'll grow in my understanding of something, and I'll grow in my experience of something. It's called the ingredients of amazement. I'll become more and more of a pipe when I increasingly Become not just cognitively or understand in understanding, but I increasingly experience three ingredients of being amazed by grace. Ingredient number one, all three are found in the story. Ingredient number one of being amazed by grace is the ingredient of desperation. I want you to hear me loud and clear. Buckets know very little, if anything at all, about desperation. Pipes are intimately acquainted with it. Verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. The distant country was most probably, in their minds and the listeners' minds, the Decapolis, right across the Sea of Galilee, where the pagans lived, where the non-chosen lived, where, where the riffraff lived. You went there to be really rebellious. That was the distant country. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs, deliberately chosen by Jesus as he's looking at these religious leaders, buckets, for whom the ultimate uncleanness was pigs other than death, other than a dead body. Pigs. Oh, man, this kid is gone. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when? When he came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I'll set out, and I'll go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up, and he went to his father. A couple of things Are necessary to understand about desperation. It involves, first of all, realization. Realization is when I acknowledge my sin to myself. And buckets aren't very good at doing that, but pipes are. Let me ask you a question. I want you to be very honest. Have you ever found yourself pretending to appreciate God's grace? Singing a song, reading a passage of scripture, talking with someone else. You're just pretending. You know you are. It happens to me. I've at least grown enough in my maturity to know, though, when that happens, that's not the root issue. When I'm pretending to believe that, uh, when I'm pretending to appreciate God's grace, it's because of a deeper issue. I'm only pretending to believe that I'm a sinner. That's why. But we still haven't gotten to the root of it. Because when I'm only pretending to believe I'm a sinner, it's because I'm only pretending to believe that God is holy. I don't really think He is. You see, someone that's not very acquainted with desperate or desperate, desperation, or in those moments when when all of us fall and we don't feel very desperate, we're 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 kind of getting proud of ourselves and thinking, "Isn't God privileged to have me on His team?" You know, He has so few friends in this culture. I know He's glad I'm around. We become very religious. But the brokenness and the desperation leaves. Because when that happens, God ceases to be who He is and becomes our mascot, our genie that we carry around in our back pocket for when we're in a crunch. And in that case, God's only a little bigger, a little stronger, a little smarter, and a little older than me. Therefore, the gap between God and me isn't that great. Listen very carefully. When I do not perceive the gap between God and me being that big... Therefore, the bridge over that gap, which is Christ's work of substitutionary death on the cross, where he died to pay the penalty for my rebellion against God's rule in my life, Jesus' work on the cross, the bridge, is not that significant. And the grace that describes Jesus' work isn't that amazing. As the church father Anselm years ago said in his treatise, What is man? We have yet to see how terrible a thing our sin is. Reality number, truth number one, I am a rebellious sinner. Re- reality number two, God is absolutely just and must pay that sin. Reality number three, God is free to do with me whatever he chooses. Reality number four, I can do nothing about the first three. Wait a minute, you don't, you're not telling me God doesn't have to be, he has to be gracious to me. Does he really? No, he doesn't. Because if he had to be gracious, it wouldn't be grace. This young man was beginning to understand that his dad owed him nothing. Culturally, do you know the appropriate thing for his father to do? In an insula community, there was not just a nuclear household, of two bedrooms, uh, three bedrooms, two bath type situation. An, an insula household, which in the, in the Galilee was the predominant means of a survival in community life. You had the matriarch, patriarch, but their sons and daughters, their spouses, cousins, in-laws, In extended family, when someone would get married, they would just add another room onto the house. This was a connected place. It was unheard of for someone to demand their inheritance, pluck it out, break that unity up, and go party. So the appropriate thing, the culturally acceptable thing for that father to do when that young man came back is to look at him and say, you are no longer my son. Leave and I never want to see you again. When that son turned around and left, you know what would happen. The rest of the community would have come around that dad and said, I know it was hard, but you did the right thing. This young man knew he didn't deserve. He realized his sin and he was ready to confess it. That's the second part of desperation, confession. The Greek word for confess is homologeo. It means to homo the same, logeo to speak, to speak the same. Confession is when I'm simply speaking the same to God, admitting my sin to Him. It's not; I'm not telling God something He doesn't already know. I'm simply letting Him know that I'm aware, according to Isaiah 55, you, He is the high and exalted one whose name is holy, who lives forever, but He also dwells with those who are lowly of spirit and contrite of heart. Those who understand that they're not just a couple of inches shorter than God and a couple of years younger, but those who are separated from Him by an infinite gap and they are standing justly so condemned forever unless God intervenes in some way and the message of the gospel is that he has but we're not there yet see it's on this issue of desperation where grace and religiosity part ways religion caters to our pride we swell up thinking aren't I something something God really must be happy I'm on his team. We whitewash, excuse, rationalize all of the indications of brokenness and sinfulness in our lives. And we're going to see in the life and the unmasking of this bucket, the older brother, a very different picture than what's taking place in this younger brother when he's being born as a pipe. There's no desperation there. There's a sense, I've earned it. I've earned your love. I've kept all the rules. But it's only as I embrace my desperation that I can then move in to the second ingredient of amazement. Intervention. If I'm going to grow in my pipeness, I'll grow in my understanding and awareness of my desperation but I'll also grow in my understanding and experience of God's intervention in the face of it. And see, we usually only appreciate intervention when we're convinced of our desperation. Religious people will try in politeness to bypass the desperation part because that's kind of offensive. You know, it goes against what our culture says about you thinking so highly of yourself. And uh, it, We'll bypass that. We'll come to the intervention. But the intervention has no meaning. It has no significance. It's not very special, and it's certainly not amazing. After my first year in college, I sold, one summer, I sold books door-to-door in Arkansas. Now, I know that's a scary thought, to see me smiling at your door one day when you come to it. And I had a 1968 Impala that I used that summer that was in great shape at the beginning of the summer. But one day, I parked my car at a laundromat that was adjacent to a gas station. I put it in park, went in to deliver the clothes, you know, put the laundry basket inside, left my door open. And my car jumped out of park and began to back up at an angle, came alongside another car in the gas station, and the only thing that stopped it was the door of my 1968 Impala, that when that little encounter was over it was still at a 45 degree angle but in the opposite direction of what it was supposed to be. (laughs) Doors aren't meant to stop moving cars. So I put my brilliant mechanical mind to work and I asked one of the mechanics there at the gas station for a sledgehammer. And I went over to the corner of the the, the, the gas station lot and proceeded to beat on the hinge of my door to get the door to shut. And while I am banging away on the door of my vehicle, causing a little ex- meh, excessive damage, you know, in addition to what uh, my purpose was, this guy pulled up in a pickup truck. You know what he said? Those, those wonderful three magic words? Need some help? <laughs> you know what I said? No, no, I've got it under control. I well, yeah, sure you do. You're beating on the side of your car with a sledgehammer. But I, he actually didn't smile or anything. He just moved on. I know he's dying laughing inside. Two days after that, after I've been driving around with my door, I, I did get it shut, only with about that much space left, and I couldn't get it shut any further than that. So after two days of driving around at every stoplight, people rolling down their windows saying, your door's open. <clears throat> I'm pulling up to this one stoplight and a, and a kickball comes across the street and I know a kid's got to be somewhere so I slam on the brakes and thankfully the little child stopped but what happened is I had one of those wonderfully fashionable plastic garbage cans with the sandbags on either side that sat on the hump remember those? We don't even have humps in our cars anymore but on the floorboard there was that hump when I slammed on brakes that trash can rolled down and leaned up against my brake pedal when I let off the brakes when I realized the kid wasn't gonna run out it wedged behind the brake and now I'm approaching this line of traffic that's waiting at a stoplight thankfully there was a truck with a steel girder that helped me stop. The steel girder was what some would call a bumper. And it demolished the front end of my 1968 Impala. I mean, steam is is hissing. My, My front hood is buckled. I'm standing there in the midst of all of that steam. And this little old lady comes up next to me in the traffic, rolls down her window, and you know what she said? Need some help. You know what I said? No, no, I'm okay. Three days later... After I've sealed the radiator, it's fine. Didn't want to repair the hood in a, uh, in a high-tech way, so I just bent it back and then latched it with some wire. The wire worked well at low speeds. <laughs> but three days later, I'm driving at higher speed. On the, on the highway, at about 55 miles an hour, a nice gust of wind cooperates with a wonderful way with that wire. And all of a sudden, it sets loose. And that hood of my car peels up over my windshield, and I blindly pull off the road. I'm sitting there with the hood of my car peeled over my windshield and this guy pulls up next to me and you know what he says? Need some help? You know what I said? I do. My desperation was finally to a point where I was open to some intervention. See, you and I will only appreciate the offer of intervention in context of how severe we sense our desperation to be. And if I whitewash over, which is our tendency, whitewashing over our sin. You know why we do that? We think, man, I don't want to admit all of that stuff. I don't want to open that that can of worms up because we think it'll it'll cause us to be distant from God. He'll He'll be upset. When the scriptures tell us that is exactly what will bring you to him. He knows it's there. Don't whitewash it like religion teaches to do so that you can think more highly of yourself. Open it up. Confess it agree with God that it's there and then see against the backdrop of the awfulness, the beauty of his intervention and then we start being familiar with the word amazing. Do do something for me with your computer Bible program, won't you? Put the word but and the word God together and do a search in the entire Bible and see how often those two words occur. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love for us, sent Jesus. He's all over the place. And there is no desperation present in this auditorium that is too big for God's intervention. There's no sin that's too big. There's no health condition. There's no despair. There's nothing here that's, not, that, that, that's going to power God's intervention. As Corey ten Boom beautifully said, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. But we will not appreciate that God who is deeper still until we know how deep our pit is. And so if I'm going to grow in my amazement, not only will I grow in increasingly understanding and experiencing my desperation and not whitewashing it, I'll move into You can't stay there because that's despair. You move right into experiencing and understanding more deeply God's intervention. And you put those two ingredients together and the sum total of those is ingredient number three. Do you know what it is? Hmm. Celebration. Celebration. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he said, there's no way in the world I'm letting Raff like you into this house. That's what you and I often think will happen if we really own up to our desperation because we think God's just a little bit bigger than us and there's no way that you would forgive yourself, so you're sure that God won't. And the Scripture says you're made in God's image. He's not made in yours Our thoughts are not his thoughts. And God says, I will intervene. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's just the prologue. That's just the intro. He's memorized this thing. He takes a breath to go into the body of his speech that has been carved out to the core of his soul over the last few days in the desperation that he is experiencing. And he's ready to say, make me one of your hired men. I know, I know the sun thing is out of the question, but could I at least work back out in the barn? And his dad doesn't even let him finish the speech. The father said to his servants, he said, quick, quick. Bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Is that beautiful intervention or what? And now look at that third ingredient celebration. Bring the fat and calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine is dead was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's now found, so they began to celebrate. You know something that I'm I'm seeing the older I get, I'm finding that I'm crying more and I'm laughing more. Before you call the men in the little white coats to come get me, by the way, there are plenty of reasons that that would be appropriate for me, but this is not one of them. I'm crying more because the older I get, but more clearly, I see the brokenness of our planet, the brokenness of our world, the shrapnel of that brokenness in people around me, people I don't even know, and people that I know very well, including the man that I see in the mirror. And it aches my heart. From accidents to rebellion to blatant sin to sickness that I can't explain. And I'm crying more. But I'm also laughing more. You know why? I'm learning to celebrate as a pipe. I don't have this pipe thing down by any stretch. I mean, I'm still in pipe hood 101. (laughs) But I'm getting that, that there is cause to celebrate. Why? How do you and I celebrate? How do we laugh more? Oh, do we we stick our head in some religious sand back here and say, I'm going to pretend that this world's not broken, you know, it's not hot and I'm not here kind of thing? Scripture doesn't ask us to do that. Christianity never says ignore the truth. Other religions might say, you kind of block that stuff out, meditate on that which is whole. Scripture says, stare at that which is broken. Look it in the eye. Don't whitewash it, whether it's in your life or those around you. Just see looming behind that brokenness that's awful, the giant of God's intervention that's clothed in the reality of Jesus Christ, his son. That's cause to celebrate. Let me tell you, though, a couple of groups of people who don't come to the party. They won't. first group is this, those who cannot grasp their own desperation. They will not deal with it. Remember the older brother? Meanwhile, verse 25, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother said, Oh, that is fantastic. You know, I haven't had time in the last couple of weeks to look for him, but I've been searching for him for so long. I'm, I've been praying for him. I'm so happy he's finally back home. No, remember, this is the unmasking of a bucket. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. I can guarantee you something. That when Jesus is saying these words, he is engaged directly with the eye sockets of the Pharisees and the Torah teachers. So his father went out and pleaded with him, But he answered his father, look, look, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. I've had all my T's crossed and my I's dotted, he says. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not brother of mine, this son of yours who has has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You see, this older brother, Bucket. He cannot believe that a celebration should happen because celebrations you see see, should be deserved. The bucket part in all of us feels superior religiously. We look in judgment on other people's flaws. When the bucket side of us begins to come out, we perceive our, our this this whole thing with God not as a relationship, but as a system of rule keeping, and we lower the bar so much so that we can finally say, I've kept all the rules. Who knows how many younger brothers we are scaring away in the process of that brand of non-Christianity. No wonder the younger brother left with an older brother like that. And for many of us, what gets in the way between us and God is not our, our awful sin, but our commendable religiosity that causes us to bypass the desperation in our life. And not embrace it. So that's one group of people that won't come to the party. Those who will not embrace and engage their desperation. There's a second group of people, though. And they're people that have no problem with their desperation. I guarantee you, there are some here right now in this category. You have no problem with desperation. The guilt in your life is almost overwhelming. Where you struggle is with the intervention part. You don't know what I've done this week, Matt. You don't know what my life has looked like. You don't know how screwed up I've made things in my life. There's no way that God's going to take me back. One of the greatest privileges I have as a human being is to tell you right now that not only will God take you back, he's on the porch right now, and he said, get over here. And not only that. There might be a lot of elder brothers who've blown it in your life, but the true elder brother that Jesus was telling the Pharisees he was, he said, There wasn't a search here. There's a search for the coin. There's a search for the sheep. There hasn't been a search for the son. Why? Because you religious leaders are the older brother and you haven't gone after him. But Jesus says, I'm the true elder brother. And right now, in your hopelessness, look next to you. There's Jesus. And he says, My work on the cross is enough. There's no desperation. There's no surprise in your life. Come home. Come to the party and become a pipe. Let's pray, Father. We stand amazed. We stand amazed at your love for us that is so persistent that we can never run far enough away from you. We can never build the level of desperation up in our life that it cannot be addressed by your intervention. And I pray for those here We're struggling with their desperation, that you would soften their hearts and enable them to walk back into intimacy. They weren't able to come to the party earlier when we were celebrating. Maybe that was why. There are others who weren't able to come to the party when we were celebrating earlier in worship because they don't have a problem with the desperation. They just can't believe that you've intervened. They're their bucket, just an upside-down bucket. They're just letting all the, the gospel spill over them, wash, but they're not letting it in. May they have the courage to do that. And together, may you make us a group of people who cannot help as a result, but celebrate. A group of people who look at the world around and say, how can we keep from partying? Look at what Jesus has done for us. How can we keep from singing? In the name of our true elder brother, Jesus.